All right, thank you for that. Take your Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 for just a moment, but also turn to the book of 2 Samuel in your Bible. We're continuing our, we're wrapping up our, our sermon series. We've called a redneck Christmas because all of us, whether you want to admit it or not, we've all got extended family members, if you will. Uh, they may be on your side, maybe on her side, or, or, or whatever the case is. Maybe you've got family members you're not exactly proud of. You know what I mean. You love them. You're just glad that they normally live a couple of states away, and that just works out good uh, for all, everyone involved uh, in this situation. Some of your family members, put the, they put the fun in dysfunctional. Amen? And uh, so we all have them. In some ways, we are all them ourselves. Now, one of the things that we've talked about in, in the weeks leading up to this is that when Matthew is going to share the story of the birth of Christ, the gospel, and everything that's coming up, he started with this genealogy. And what he points out is there's some pretty interesting, to say the least, characters in the family tree of Jesus, probably just like you. And so he begins with this genealogy, and again, there's some icky, icky, icky people in it. And it's an unusual thing in that time of day. Back then, if you're doing a genealogy of somebody, it was completely normal to skip people, number one, to skip people, leave people out, and right, to make the person you're writing about look good. One of the things you would have never done in Matthew's day is include women. Uh, Matthew includes four women. Three of them weren't even Jewish. And so none of these things are really helping his case. It's completely unusual, out of the ordinary, for Matthew to include some of the people that he includes in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, why is that? And the answer to that has been the same each week. Write this down one more time. Sinners are part of the story, and sinners are the point of the story. The reason why Matthew includes some of these characters in the genealogy, these sinful people, is because that's the point. Jesus came from, earthly speaking, from sinful people for sinful people, fully God, but yet fully man. And Matthew is about to tell the story of Jesus who's coming to show grace and mercy and love and compassion on people who the religious people in Matthew's day never would have done that for at all. They would have had nothing to do with these people. So Matthew starts out here. He's showing that Jesus is, if you're going to be the Messiah, you've got to be descended from King David, right? Everybody, any good Jew in Matthew's day knew you had to be from King David. And the great, mighty King David who did so many amazing things. Yet, when Matthew gets to King David in the genealogy, he pauses and emphasizes the one thing that David in heaven wishes we would all forget. Right? He slams on the brakes, makes you take a look at this. And in fact, this, you may not even know some of the flaws that David had. One of the times, King David, the mighty King David, one of the times, because of his insecurities and fears, he lied and 85 priests got killed because of it. This is a guy who betrayed his most loyal friends, had one of them basically put to death. This is a guy who ran around on his wife. This is a guy whose family was so dysfunctional, it makes your soap opera look completely normal. I mean, it was dysfunctional. 
And this is David, the one whom that Jesus has to be related to to be the Messiah. There are so many embarrassing moments and seasons in the life of David, it's not even funny. Yet David's name and Jesus' name are forever tied together. Jesus had to be descended from David. Matter of fact, a little interesting side note, you'll notice in the Gospels, in Luke's Gospel, the genealogies are different. In Luke, it traces the genealogy of Mary, and it shows how she's descended from uh, Nathan through David's bloodline, and then shows how, and in Matthew, he focuses on Joseph, right, uh, uh, Joseph's uh, genealogy, and shows the relation there through uh, Solomon. And so what you have here is this genealogy where no matter how you look at it, David and Jesus are forever tied together. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Look how the book starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Who is he? The son of David. Right? He's the great, 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 great grandson of David. Right there at the top, right there at the beginning. Go down to verse number 5 in Matthew 1. It says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. You remember Rahab? Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even say her name, but you know her name, don't you? What's her name? Bathsheba. Look, why didn't he call him David the builder, David the king, David the psalmist, David the warrior, David the shepherd boy, anything but David the father of Solomon who was the wife of Uriah, pointing out his gravest sin. I mean, there's so many amazing things that could have been said, but Matthew zeroes in on the one thing that we would never include if we're doing our genealogy. It's like, yeah, David, Father Solomon, you know, the guy who uh, got Uriah's wife pregnant and had got him murdered and then married her. And so Matthew intentionally, on purpose, brings up all this dysfunction to the service for us to look at. Why? Because that's the point of the story. Matthew's about to tell us the gospel in the book of Matthew about why Jesus came, born in a manger. He's about to tell us the whole story, and he sets it up uh, with these people's names. Write this down. What we need to understand is that David's story is our story, a life of victory and just abject failure. If you've been alive very long, you know this truth. If you've been a Christian very long, you know this is true. You've lived a life of spiritual victory and then terrible, crushing failure. And that's David's story. And that's our story. Now, let me give you a little context. The story of David happens a thousand years before Jesus is born. So about 3000 years ago from now, and there's this prophet named Samuel and God told the prophet Samuel, he said, Samuel, I'm going to go. I want to anoint a new King. Saul has done terrible. I'm going to get rid of Saul. We're going to have a new King. And so he tells him to go to this man's house uh, named Jesse. Now, Jesse, he lived in a city called Bethlehem. Does that sound familiar this morning, Bethlehem? And so Jesse lived in Bethlehem, and he goes to his house, and he says, Jesse, call all your sons together. I want you to bring them all before me. I've got some special news for them. And so they line them up. And so Jesse calls seven of his eight sons. The eighth son, the runt of the litter, is out there tending sheep 
with the hired servants, right? So he calls his seven sons. The first one stands before Samuel. Now remember, God is supposed to tell him which one the king is to be. And so the first one stands in front of Samuel, and, and he's like, this guy looks good. I mean, this is a, this is a five-star prospect right here. He is a stud. Look, at, He's so good looking. He seems so smart. Surely this is the guy. And God says, nope. And Samuel goes, okay, next. Right? Surely that, nope. And next, and next, four, five, six, seven times. And finally, Samuel looks at Jesse and says, is this all, this all of your sons? He goes, oh, you know, we got one more that I didn't think about. Again, the runt of the litter out there with the hirelings out there. And, he, and, and Samuel says, Jesse, tell him to come here. So David comes in before Samuel, and God tells Samuel, that's the next king. And then and Samuel said, you sure? No, he didn't say that. I don't know what he said. But you get that impression. And so what happens is Samuel anoints David and tells David, this young man, this, he's a kid, he's a kid actually, this young man, this child, this teenager, you're going to be the next king over Israel and anoints him uh, with oil. And of course, David, he didn't know what that means. You know how teenagers are. You know, he's like, David, come out of the field. Some preacher wants to talk to you. Preacher says, you're going to be the next king. Whatever, can I go out and play? Right? I mean, David just blows his nose and he goes back out in the field. And it's many years before things even start running. I believe with all of my heart, there's no way at the time that David understood everything that was going on. Uh, and read the story for yourself. But years go by, years and years and years go by. And in a very dramatic, miraculous, real way, eventually David becomes king over all of Israel. Despite all of the odds, God had called him to be the king. And then he's king for several years. He's in his palace. He's looking around. He's thinking, boy, God sure has blessed me. I've got it good. I've got it so good. It's unreal. And then he looks out his window and he sees the tabernacle. Now, do you know what the tabernacle is? That's where they worship. For Israel, the literal presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle. And it was a very beautiful tent situation. And, uh, uh, and that's where the nation of Israel, the Jews, would go to worship, was at the tabernacle. That's where the priests did their thing. So David, living in his palace, so to speak, looks out his window, and he thinks to himself, listen, if I got a house, surely we can get God a house too. Right? It's time for God to stop camping out, and it's time, let's just move him on in. So David purposed in his heart, I'm going to build God a temple. And he began preparing, and he began raising money, and doing all of those things, putting everything together. And then it's at that point that God sent another prophet to David to talk to David. And this prophet's name was Nathan. Nathan. And look at it in your Bible. At 2 Samuel, I'm going to be in chapter 7, chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse number 8. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Nathan said, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, here he goes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. He said, I took you from out there watching sheep all the way to the palace. Verse 9, he says, And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and listen, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth, right? And then in other places, God promises how great his name is going to be. 3,000, listen, 3,000 years ago, God is telling David, your name is going to be great like the greatest men who have ever lived. Let me ask you a question this morning. Before you came in here this morning, have you ever heard of King David before? That prophecy is true. 
Again, it's just another reason to believe the Bible. When the Word of God says it, you can believe it. God said, David, I'm going to make your name great. And even today, in 2018, all over the world, different nations, different languages, different kinds of people, many, many people know the name of King David. I mean, it's amazing. It has nothing to do with our messages, but just it's amazing. Predicted 3,000 years ago. Now look at verse 12. God is saying to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You're going to have a son. He's going to reign after you. We know his name's Solomon. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. In other words, David, you can't build the temple, but your son Solomon, he's going to build the temple, right? And so Solomon, and you know from Scripture, he did. Solomon built the world-famous, wonderful, marvel-of-the-world temple. They called it Solomon's Temple in that day. Now look at the second part of verse 13. He says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Say forever. Forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now what's coming up next is very important. You have God's, literally you have God's judgment and God's love right here in these verses. Look at the second part of verse 14. God says, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. In other words, David, when your people do wrong, I am not going to turn and, and look the other way. I will discipline my people. I will discipline my children when they sin. But, look at verse 15, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Say forever. Before you, your throne shall be established forever. He is making an unconditional promise to David that your family, that your bloodline, that your people, your, your throne, your name, your lineage is going to be established forever. And it's a promise from God, an amazing promise from God. And then David receives this word from Nathan the prophet. God is speaking into his life. And then four short chapters later, David does, has to be testing God's patience to the max. But before we get there, write this down. I want you to know this. David doesn't deserve the blessings of God on his life. And let's be honest, we don't either. David doesn't deserve what God is giving him here, this blessing. Let me You know the story, but let me condense it down for you. Again, he's on his palace wall one night, and he looks down. He sees a beautiful young lady, and he asks one of his servants, who's that girl? And they said, that's your general Uriah's wife and that's Bathsheba and then David's like well where's where's Uriah at well he's at the battlefield well call her on up I want to talk with her then they do more than talk and the next thing you know in the story Bathsheba is sending word to David through one of her servants that she is pregnant with David's child and now David has a real mess on his hands so David calls for Uriah to come up off the battlefield and he's trying to you know give him some reason that he needs to be there and they have this meeting and when the meeting's over, David says to his guy, Uriah, Uriah, before you go, go and spend the night with your wife, right? Go and visit your family. Spend the night with your wife before you go back to the battlefield tomorrow. And so Uriah leaves, but David finds out the next morning that Uriah didn't go spend the night with his wife. He slept there on the steps of David's door, right? And then David's like, why'd you do that? You're supposed to go home. And Uriah's basically like, how could I? leave my men out there on the battlefield fighting for their lives and go home and, and spend the night with my wife. I couldn't do that. 
There's no way. And so then David tries again. Two times this happens. Uriah will not go home while his men are in the field. At which point in the story, you got to be kind of, if you're me and you're reading this, you kind of start thinking, God, God has to be going, David, Uriah. David, Uriah. I think I'll make Uriah king. Because Uriah seems to be the only righteous one in the bunch. David is spending time in the palace while his men are out fighting. Uriah comes home and his men are out fighting. He sleeps on the steps rather than going home. You know that had to be a, a, just an embarrassment, a slap in the face of David. He is much more righteous at this point in his life than David was. David was far from God. But write this down. God's love for his children is unconditional. It's unconditional. It wasn't based on David's behavior, how good David was, how perfect David was. God had made an unconditional promise to David, and God was going to keep his promise. Then David does something you can't even imagine. David writes a message to Joab. Joab is the general above Uriah. He writes this message to Joab, and what he says is, Joab, I want you to put Uriah and his men in the middle of the thickest fight, and and right when the battle gets hot, right when everything's on the line, I want you to pull everybody back and leave Uriah and his men there to fight. And when Joab got that message, Joab knows that's a death sentence. That's a death sentence. And imagine this, picture this for just a moment. David writes this, seals it, gives it to Uriah to take to Joab. He gives Uriah his own death note and has him deliver it. That's wicked. Wicked, wicked, bad. And listen, and Uriah was such a great man, such a great man of God. And if you read the story, what will happen is when the, when the fighting happens and everybody pulls back, Uriah and his boys, they, get, they made it all the way to the wall of the city they were trying to take before Uriah went down. Uriah is a man's man, and he's a godly man. And David had him murdered out of wickedness. It was, it was cold-blooded and terrible. And Uriah dies with his men. So what happens is Uriah dies in battle because that's where men like Uriah die in battle, not laying in their bed like King David. And so Uriah dies in battle. Message comes back. Uriah is dead, which is a big blow for the people of Israel. So Bathsheba goes into her time of mourning. And then when the appropriate time was up, where the mourning was over, so everything would look okay, then her and David get married. And David thinks, okay, we're married now. She's going to have my child. We've got everything covered. We're good to go. Nobody knows. But God always knows. God always knows. He thought he was fine and covered it up, but God knew. Listen, God's love for his children is unconditional, but write this down. His abhorrence, his hatred for sin is absolute. Absolute. God hates sin. Sin will always be judged. Sin will always find you out. God hates sin. Matter of fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, the Bible says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Isn't that a nice way of saying it? Displease the Lord. Right? I'm displeased when I go out to eat my food's cold. Listen, God here, don't let that, the English translation fool you. God has righteous, righteous anger. So what does God do with his promise? 
What happens is Nathan shows up. David thinks he's got away with it. Nathan shows up and, and does this story, does this, read it for yourself. It's awesome how Nathan confronts him with his sin, but tells him, you're a sinner, David. You've done this wicked before God. And David, to his credit, he confessed his sin. He went and fell down before the altar of God. You can read about it. I think it's in the 51st Psalm. You can go and read it, and you can just read how David is just heartbroken about his sin. God against you and you alone. I have sinned. I've done this wicked thing. Completely contrite. Begs for forgiveness, and God forgives him. But God is going to discipline and punish David. And his chastisement God's discipline on David is brutal, man. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it with any nice words. It's rough, 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 hard, right? But God's promises remain unconditional. The promises that God made to David, God is going to keep his promises. Write this down. David's inconsistent behavior did not override God's unconditional promises. David's behavior, you don't get much worse than that. Well, maybe you do. I don't get much worse than sleeping with somebody, murdering her husband, and marrying her. Okay? That's how me and Alicia met. It was a long time ago. (laughs) His name was Jethro. Amen? I'm just kidding. But that's wicked. Do you see what I'm saying? Saying David's inconsistent behavior, the fact that he had victories and failures, did not change God's unconditional promises one iota. Listen to some of this discipline that David faced. Uh, when God disciplined David, again, he went all the way. Um, David's entire family fell apart. His sons went to war with each other. David's daughter was raped by her half-brother. Uh, his favorite son was murdered by his oldest son. And then his favorite general, Joab, murdered his favorite son. His baby died. His family was split. Uh, The kingdom was divided for a time. He had to move out of the palace. And his son was humiliating him in a way that you can't even imagine. And through all of this incredible personal disaster for David, God never withdrew his promise. God never said, nope, David, I changed my mind. You've done too much, too bad. The point is this. Our God is a promise-keeping God. When he promises you something, our God is going to keep his word, even when your behavior is inconsistent. And we know this because a man in the line of David named Joseph with his pregnant wife, Mary, they made their way to the city of Bethlehem. By the time Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was known as the city of David. David. And in the city of David, she gave birth to the great, 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 great grandson of King David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, because God keeps promises always. And when God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. Even the most heinous sin in the world cannot force our God to go back on his word. And see, and Matthew is about to tell a story of when the babe comes to the manger of a God who's going to make a promise to the whole world. And when he's telling us about David and about Uriah and about Solomon, he's reminding us that our God is a promise-keeping God. It's a, and this new promise is going to be sealed in blood. That when Jesus, this babe, who's going to grow up and go to the cross and die on the cross and shed his blood, it was a promise that all men, all women, all boys, all girls 
could be forgiven of their sin and have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And it was, it's not going to be determined by their behavior. It's not going to be determined by what they earn or what they deserve. It's going to be determined by God who promised it would happen. He is a promise-keeping God. And just as God kept his promise to David, God will keep his promise to you. In the same way that God will keep his promise to everyone who trusts his son. The angel said it better than anybody. You've heard it a thousand times. I want you to listen to it with this brand new filter. Luke chapter 2 verse 10. The angel said, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Great joy, which will be to all people. It's for everyone, all people, and that includes you. And that's what Scott was talking about this morning. Do you know what the missing ingredient in the average Christian's life is in 2018? Joy! There's no joy. We come and worship God like we just ate it, and we're here. We're fulfilling some obligation, and yet the angels announce it's going to be good tidings of great joy. The average Christian don't even have a little, a little joy. We don't even have okay tidings of a little joy, which would be to all people. The average believer, no joy. You want to know why? Probably no Christ. Probably. More than likely. I don't believe that redeemed people can live a joyless life. It's not happening. Christ in you will shine through. Joy for everybody. And that's the good news that it includes all of us. All of us. Every man, the good people, the bad people, the in-between people, the people that think they're better than everybody, the people that think they're not good enough, the people that are down and out, the people that are in and up. All people. He made this promise. Look at verse 11. It says, for there is born to you this day. Where? In the city of David. The murderer, the adulterer, the liar, David, who ruined his kingdom, wrecked his family, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I hope for the rest of your life that this, whenever you hear in the city of David, the one thing that comes to mind is the promises of God. Not David's sin and all of that. The promises of God. That our God is a promise-keeping God. That God made promises to David, and and a thousand years later, Jesus was born. And here, 2,000 years after that, we're here reaping all the benefits of the fact that God keeps his promises. David, the promise-breaker. David, the unfaithful. David, the guy who leveraged his, uh, his power for personal gain. David, who wrecked his family. David, who met Bathsheba, and she'd probably be on Twitter saying, hashtag, me too. You think she had a choice? You think Bathsheba had an option? You think being called before the king, she had any choice at all? Let me tell you something. If her choice had been no, she would have been dead like Uriah. Because David was in a wicked place. David, in the city of David, in the town of David, we serve a promise-keeping God. And it's not, it is, him keeping his word isn't dependent upon me being good. 
or me being better or me doing and serving and going. It's not dependent on any of that. Look at verse 13. It says, And suddenly there was the, uh, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Does that last, Do you have goodwill toward men this morning? Or is your heart filled with hate? Malice, a critical spirit, a gossiping tongue. Do you have goodwill towards men? That's the promise. God has given us his spirit and he's promised us peace. Do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with the people in your life? Do you know why you don't have peace? Write this down. Sin. Sin, man. Sin. Your greatest obstacle to peace in your life is sin. The reason why you don't have peace with God is because you're negotiating your sin. Because I've thought a lot about David, because I'm a preacher, that's what we do, okay? And I've thought a lot about David, and I believe that David was negotiating. That every, when he didn't go to the battle, when he should have been at the battle, he was like, well, I know I'm supposed to go, but you know, I've got a lot of administrative duties to do, right? He didn't do what he knew. Or when he was looking at Bathsheba, he rationalized it, right? When, when, when he called her to him, he rationalized it. He negotiated, right? When he slept with her, then he, oh, I know that was bad, but that was just one time. He negotiated his sin. And he negotiated and negotiated. And when we negotiate our sin, there's no peace with God in that. God, I'm not that bad. God, I'm going to do better. God, if you'll just do this, then I'll stop doing this. Or God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. Negotiating with God. If your whole interaction with God is negotiate, negotiate, promise and fail and promise and fail, you'll never have peace with God like that. Never. The only way to have peace with God is to have your obstacle to your peace removed. Write this down. The message of Christmas, guys, Jesus came to remove your sin so that you can have peace. He says, peace, goodwill to all men. Peace. Jesus came to remove your sin so that you can have peace with God, so that you can be forgiven. And don't start telling me about how bad you are. I probably already know. Right? Well, brother, you don't know what, you know. Listen, I'll just tell you the story of David again, but with more detail. I'll tell you the story of Tamar. Remember how she pretended to be a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law in in the line of Jesus. I'll tell you the story of Rahab, the former prostitute in the line of Jesus. Listen, you can't have the promise of Christmas. You can't have peace with God, much less anybody else, until your sin is removed. It has to be removed. And the promise of Christmas, look at this verse, you know it, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's an unconditional promise from God. An unconditional promise. Just as strong, just as serious, and just as unconditional as the one he gave to his servant, David. You can have peace with God. Listen, you can have peace with God in spite of you. You can have peace with God and stop getting in your own way. And you may think, you know, maybe you're listening to this and you're kind of thinking, well, Marcus, you're saying it's okay to sin and you you haven't been listening. Did you hear what happened to David and his family and his babies and his kingdom and his life and his wife? No, it's not okay. That's not what I'm saying. 
consequences. This isn't about that. This is about whether or not you can have peace with God. And the answer is yes. The promise of Christmas is peace for everyone who will embrace the Prince of Peace, who paid the price for peace so that we could have peace with God. It's not you doing better or saying that you're going to do better. It's not trying to be good and presentable. It's not you trying to clean up, act right, walk right, spit white, and try not to stumble. Have you accepted the promise of God, his sacrifice, his righteousness for your sin, his life for your life? That's the promise of Christmas. Everybody loves, you know, baby Jesus in the manger. And that's the great, you know, only God could come up with that, by the way. Like people that don't believe the Christmas story, the truth of it. We would have had some mighty king come riding in on a stallion with a sword, kicking everybody in the face. But God sent the Savior of the world, born into a family of sinful people, to live just like us and to be humble and, and to work and to strive and to hurt and to cry but to live that perfect life that we just can't live on our own because we have that obstacle, sin, and to go to the cross, innocent, completely innocent. He had done no wrong. And to go to the cross and to be crucified for our sin. And then on the third day to be resurrected and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's praying for us right now. Do you know that, Jesus? Or are you still negotiating with God over the sin? Let's pray.